0: Let's go Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a body. Is that me? Check it, check it, check. Check one. Check two. Check three. Check four. Check five. Chris is one of the best sound people we've got. So if it can be figured out, he'll do it. Genesis chapter 3. That's going to annoy me. <laughs> if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. We also have some Bibles scattered around in, uh, throughout the room in the little racks under the seat. If you don't own a Bible, man, I'd love for you to take one of those home. Uh, we value God's word here. We believe that uh, it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance, that it breathes life into a weary soul. We believe that it's the primary means by which God uh, makes himself known to his creation. We believe that it's effectual for God's purposes, meaning that when you start reading your Bible, God's going to do something with it because it's a tool in his hands, and he's pretty good at handling tools. All right. So if you own a Bible outside of this place, please take one home as a gift. Uh, we've got some some nicer ones in a lost and found in the hallway. You just scratch the name off and get to work. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Here we are. The last week of a series that we've been in since January. Is anybody excited? Should we just keep going? (laughs) I want to preach Ephesians, man. All right. No. uh, We've been in a series that we're calling On the Same Page. Uh, the premise is incredibly simple. Uh, we come from all these different backgrounds, uh, whether we're talking about cultural stuff or generational stuff or ethnic stuff or regional stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively new here. I've, I've moved from Southeast Texas back in December, which seems like the last part of the year that you want to be moving to New Hampshire, but I did it anyways. Um, So we got all these people in here, uh, even coming from different church traditions, Uh, and so when we walk in the room, uh, we all kind of have these preconceived notions about what certain things mean vocabulary-wise, and so what we've been doing is uh, defining major vocabulary words in the life of the church. Right? And so we're calling it on the same page But we've pretty much just defined vocabulary words We've looked at the gospel We've looked at scripture We've looked at uh, mission a couple of times we've looked, at, um, we've looked at mission We've looked at citizenship, stewardship All these kind of great words Last week we talked about what? Do you remember? Do I, do you, do I need to re-preach last week? What did we talk about last week? God's will, right? we talked about God's will, all right? And so we, it was a special week for us. We had a couple of seniors, uh, graduating seniors, up on the front row, and uh, we kind of geared our service towards them to speak to them, and we said that God's will for the follower of Jesus, for the one who abides, who presses in, convict, uh, confesses sin, comes to God in faith, for the one who abides, the follower of Jesus, that God's will is not some complicated thing, that it's not some fearful thing, it's not something you can miss. That for the follower of Jesus, God's will is actually freedom. That when you walk deeply and closely with him, that he has gifted you and is gifting you to do all the things that you love and enjoy, are passionate about in this world, that you go do that you go do you, that for the follower of Jesus, whether you're the 18-year-old getting ready to ma- make major life decisions or you're the whatever-year-old who thinks that all of your life decisions are kind of behind you and you're just dealing with the small stuff, no matter where you are in this, in this life that we're living, that God's will for the follower of Jesus is about you walking deeply with Him as you do the thing that He has especially gifted you to do. So go have fun. Repent of sin, walk closely with him, and go enjoy. That's the way we said it. All right? So it's the last week. We've got one more phrase that we want to roll out. You ready? Common grace. Common grace. It's a word that you are going to hear me say. From time to time, all right, it just kind of rolls out on me. It's this thing that I probably say it too much. In fact, I've said it probably several times over the course of this series already. and You either caught it or you didn't. Common grace. So let's define it. What is common grace? Well, what is grace? Grace is a gift, right? And I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. Whenever you look in the Bible, uh, uh, whenever you're in the New Testament uh, and you come across the word grace, the word in Greek that's being translated as grace is the Greek word charis. Everybody say charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis. It's where we get our English word charity from. Charity is not something that's reciprocated, is it? It's not something that's paid back, whether in full or in installments. Charity is a gift and nothing else. Otherwise, it's not charity. Right. Whenever the Bible talks about grace, it's talking about this incredibly immeasurable gift of Jesus, the Son of God, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, living a sinless life that you and I aren't capable of living, and dying on a cross in our place. It is an incomprehensible gift of magnitude that is beyond measure. When the Bible uses the word grace, it's talking about a massive Massive gift. And if you've been in church for a while, you've got a pretty good lock on what grace is and isn't. You can differentiate that between grace and mercy, and you got your little definitions. We we kind of we know what grace is, but there's that pesky little word on the front of our phrase this morning. Common. That little qualifier does some things, doesn't it? So now when you and I use the word common, we tend to mean that something is ordinary, right? Something is plain sometimes we would even go so far to use it as boring to say something as common is to say it's kind of humdrum but theologians theologians don't think like you and i do they like to use words in their deeper meanings and so when theologians are using the word common they're not talking about every day they're talking about everybody there's a difference don't think ordinary think everyone common as in everyone gets it, right? To share something in common means that you have something that you share with someone, right? Whether that's material or immaterial, Uh, whether it's a a physical trait or just a personality type or maybe you live on the same street. To have something in common is to share something with somebody. Um, Most of you probably have been in a situation, maybe you were invited over to somebody's house, maybe you do this at your house, where you've been in a situation where you sat at a table in a family meal kind of setup and you ate out of what's called a common bowl anybody and they stick their hand in there they put it in their mouth they stick their hand back in there and they lick it a little bit they put it back in there this is the part of the sermon where all the germaphobe friends in the room get out and excuse themselves for a moment Don't they, don't they know it's flu season? <laughs> common bowls seem weird in our culture, but there's parts of the world that's not a special event. There's parts of the world where that is so ingrained in the culture that they don't know how to eat other than that. I've been to places in the world where every meal I had for a couple of weeks was out of a common bowl, and it would have been insulting to request one of your own. And even though we kind of see that as an other culture thing, we kind of have that in our culture, right? With dips and salsas and things like that. Some of our older saints in the room are well-versed in the fondue culture of a previous generation, right? That's a common, bowl experience, right? Everyone is sharing in the experience together, in common. So, grace is an incredible gift. What is an incredible gift that everyone gets to share in common grace when I say common grace I want you to be thinking a good God a good God Genesis chapter 3 the first three chapters of Genesis gives us a picture of the creation and the fall all right so most of us in here know the story but if you're new uh, and you don't let me run through it real quick Uh, God, uh, the Bible teaches that God creates everything out of an overflow of who he is, all right? That the perfection of community that exists in the Trinity just had to happen, all right? And so out of an overflow of God's power and magnitude and beauty and love and goodness and perfection, uh, God speaks everything into existence by his spoken word, all right? So Genesis 1 rolls out, God said, let there be light and light happens. The way the Hebrew reads, it's just, Be light, light be. It's just an incredible, rich detail of story. And so the Bible teaches that God creates everything by the power of his spoken word, that everything in existence exists because he willed it to be so. And that at the apex of this creation stands man and woman who were created in his image. They look more like God than the rest of creation, the Bible teaches. He places Adam and Eve in the garden. He tells them to work the ground and to keep it, to be fruitful and to multiply. Adam and Eve are walking in perfect rhythm, perfect harmony. The relationships that Adam has are flawless in every way. Between him and God, between him and his spouse, between him and the rest of creation. Everything Adam and Eve touches does exactly what they intend for it to do. Is that the world that you live in? It's not the world that I live in either. I'm constantly stumbling over myself, right? Is that, is that, is that how your Tuesday went? Everything that Adam intends to do, sets out to do. Yes, there's work. Yes, there's diligence. But every single thing that Adam touches turns to gold, man. He accomplishes everything he intends and then chapter three happens we got two chapters into the bible before this is all right adam and eve are given the opportunity to trust god's bigness and trust his goodness or instead go their own way and through adam's disobedience he rejects god's character And he rejects God's kingship over him. Now you may be asking, well, didn't they just bite some dumb fruit? Yeah. But tied up into that fruit is the reality that God was the one who defined right and wrong. That God was the one who defined what was valuable and worthy of pursuing in the world. And in an instance they said, nah, I'll chase after joy myself. It's a rejection of his character and a rejection of his lordship. Many of you know how the story rolls out after that, right? God confronts Adam, and what does Adam do? Adam passes off the blame, right? God confronts Eve, what does Eve do? Eve passes off the blame. God confronts the serpent. There's no passing off anymore, there's only three characters in the story. God curses the serpent, God curses Eve, God curses Adam by cursing the ground. He casts them out of the garden, right? Let's look at it. Verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. uh, 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, that's a type of angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So, man and woman are cast out of God's presence. They're cast out of the perfection of the garden and they are prevented from returning those of you who know the story when God tells Adam not to eat of the tree what's the promised punishment that comes death right he says when you eat of the tree you will die so Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden they're cast out of his presence. they're prevented from coming back. Now what? Like what happens next? Look at verse one of the next verse or the next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. All right, so the punishment promised to Adam uh, when... Uh, the the choice of trust God or don't trust God was in front of him was that if you don't trust me, you will die. Did that happen? Like when the Bible talks about death, it usually has three layers in view. All right, Uh, Two of them come into play here. One of those layers is the physical side, right? And all of us understand the physical side of death because we've seen it happen, right? Uh, We live in a world that Everyone dies. Sometimes we've been in the room when that happens. We have felt the weightiness and the pain that this world surrounds us with all the time. We understand death. We're fearful of it. The Bible even calls it our enemy. We get spiritual death. Another layer that comes into play here when the Bible talks about death is spiritual death. Spiritual death is to be separated from he who is life. Right? To be separated from God is to die spiritually so I'll ask the question again did Adam die he was cast out of the garden which means he was he died spiritually right what about the physical part eventually but not yet right seems that God's wrath is delayed a little bit. Did God just forget? Is God a God who forgets? No, he's not a God who forgets. He can't forget. That would make him less than God, right? So, he's cast out of the garden. He dies spiritually. But he doesn't die physically yet. Even though Adam deserves it, that's not what happens. We can add a layer on that, right? The command given to Adam and Eve was to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply, right? Did that stop after the fall? Very much no. She, they have two kids, right? Now, there's some debate over whether this happens pre-fall or post-fall. There's a really solid argument for saying it happens pre-fall. But their kids have kids, and their kids have kids, and their kids have kids, right? So this doesn't stop, right? This keeps going the command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it it's complicated because of the curse god tells eve that her pain will be multiplied it doesn't go away what about the command to work the ground and to keep it and to to be fruitful and like make things better does that go away what do we see cain and abel doing working the ground, and keeping it, right? They they both work diligently, and they produce fruit from their labor, right? So much so that they bring some back to God, all right? So, even though the command is, that, like Adam and Eve, they used to live in a place where everything they touched was perfect, and everything that they intended to accomplish happened exactly like they intended to accomplish it. That That's been marred, right? We obviously don't live in that world anymore, but... It would be unfair to say that work itself has gone away or the fruit of labor has gone away, right? And so the question we have to ask this morning is, why? Why not, right? We can add up later to that. Those are all objective things. What about the subjective? Do you think all of those things lost their goodness and enjoyment after the fall? not even close right they've been marred they've been fractured but they didn't go away it would seem that even though adam failed and failed mightily that god still showed himself to be good in spite of adam's failure right even though adam deserved wrath and wrath is for a season delayed instead god continues to show himself to be the giver of all good Flip over to the other side of your Bible to James chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, that's almost all the way to the right. Go to Revelation and turn back like 12 pages. You're there. Right after Hebrews, before 1 Peter, James chapter 1. Just look at one verse out of here real quick. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We're going to believe that's true? So just sit back for a second and take stock. Like every good thing? Like roll over in your head all the things that you enjoy in this world for a second. Every good thing comes from Him. Immaterial and material. Friendship, sunny days, cold brew coffee. Right? Are we on the same page here? The first couple of snowflakes in the winter. Only the first couple. Ray LaMontagne music. Perfectly grilled medium rare steak. Air conditioning. The Bible teaches that every good gift comes from Him I mean it's Father's Day right where do you think good daddies come from good daddies come from Him whether they know Him or not He is the source from that listen football season is almost here every team other than the Patriots (laughs) they came from Satan I'm going to get roasted for that later. All right. No, no. Just as a mental exercise for a second, take stock of all the good things you love in this world. Every single one of them. The Bible says unapologetically, no, 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 that's from God. No, you don't understand. I worked hard for this. I'm a self-made man. No, 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 such and such, or so and so gave this to me. They're the giver of the good gift. The Bible teaches, about as clearly as it teaches anything else, that all the raw material on this planet belongs to Him. And the Bible also teaches that the Holy Spirit is the source of all good inspiration. All right, So He may use a lot of different means to get that in your lap, but at the end of the day, God's responsible for it, not so and so. The Bible teaches that. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. do not forget the garden and don't you dare forget your own sinful heart in this you and i don't deserve any of it not a bit you and i don't deserve those good things right i like to think i do sometimes but it's not actually true The Bible teaches that I'm as sinful as Adam was. Adam was cast out of his presence. Everything in Adam's life and reality was fractured, marred. Adam deserved immediate death. But God delayed. And still continued to provide good things. To quote King David in Psalm 51, Behold... I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. I am just as guilty of rejecting God's good character and God's lordship over my heart and life as Adam was. On a daily basis. We don't deserve any of God's good gifts. We may prefer the sunshine. We may gripe a little bit at the dreary rainy day. The Bible teaches that if we're all being fair here, God should just take all of his oxygen and go home. Right? We, we gripe at the rainy day as if the rainy day is somehow a letdown. God didn't bring his A-game today. No, he let you keep breathing. When I say common grace, oh, I want you to be hearing a good, good, He continues to bless, continues to give in spite of the fact that we don't deserve an ounce of it. Another text, Matthew chapter 5. It'll be to your left. First book of the New Testament. It's in a little section of scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. You may have heard of it before. Matthew 5, look at verse 43. 47. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Those are both insults, by the way. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus here tells everybody who's listening to him on a hillside. He's got a bunch of uh, religious elites called Pharisees, and he's got a bunch of down and outs that he just kind of collected as he passed by the way. he's got this incredibly incredibly diverse crowd of people some who have it all put together seemingly and then a bunch of people who very much do not and he says listen love your enemies that's not easy to do anybody else doing that on the weekend going to spend my free time this week loving my enemies And then he illustrates that by saying that God sends sunshine and rain on those who don't deserve it. Again, pastoral push. We normally just kind of sift this one off to the side because we put ourselves automatically in the category of just. Oh, hear me. You don't belong in the category of just. And neither do I. Not a one of us belongs in the category of just by our own merit. Not a one of us. He says, God continues to send the rain, continues to send the sunrise. God doesn't simply hold back his righteous wrath, although he does do that. He goes so far as to extend good things towards those who have no business holding When I say common grace, I want you to be thinking a good God. Instead of righteously and fairly taking his creation and going home, he instead continues to bless. And this should absolutely dumbfound us if we're being honest, right? Like the one who understands at a core level of who they are and just how desperately they need a Savior. When you finally get that locked down, the fact that you have another day, It ought to floor you. It ought to floor you. Instead of getting what we deserve, we get His gifts. Let's look at one last text. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Let's look at a gift that is infinitely more valuable than sunshine and rain, and yes, even the air we're currently breathing. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Common grace is something that everyone shares, but theologians also have a term called special grace. Special grace ain't so common. That God gives His Son the greatest gift that the Father has given is not sunshine and it's not rain and it's not oxygen and it's not cold brew coffee and as great as it is, it's not the Dallas Cowboys. All right, That the greatest gift that God gives to any of us is His Son. Far outshines the rest. Nothing else compares to His gift of His Son. And so... Uh, that the offer of reconciliation is on the table to those who would repent of sin and come to him as Lord. That's who gets the gift, right? Spiritual death does not have to be permanent. It can be. That's the third layer of death that the Bible sometimes talks about. It's physical, it's spiritual, and it's eternal. For Adam, for Adam, it, the eternal wasn't there yet. The physical was coming. The spiritual was full-fledged. And if you don't know Jesus, you and I are in the same boat. We, we are spiritually dead and has the potential to become a forever thing. greatest gift that God has ever given, will ever give is His Son and for those who have ears to hear who come to Him as Lord that gift is received when I say common grace I want you to be thinking a good God so how do we respond this morning to God's word if you're a follower of Jesus our response this morning is to take stock for a change how quickly we fall into this rut of thinking I did this and I did that you didn't do a thing man it's not on you you'd fall apart if it wasn't for him and listen everybody's personality is different I, I, when I used to teach this kind of concept to little kids uh, we would literally sit down and make an I'm thankful for poster like we just wrote out all the things that we enjoy about the day and I would usually put Ray LaMontagne and steaks and the Dallas Cowboys and cold brew coffee on there, right? And they would make their own poster and I would tell them to take it home, blah, 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 blah. And so if you're the artsy, more poetic type, maybe that's your ball game. I don't know. Maybe you're the type that just needs to take a walk and pay attention for a change, right? Looking with intentionality at the world that God has placed you in. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be a time for all of us to respond, but... Maybe maybe that's the moment that you take this incredible gift that God's given us in music. Like, like you ever really looked at the science of music and waves traveling through the air that mess with membranes in your ears and signals to your head, and all these different pieces come together, whether they're good pieces or not so good pieces, and they form this one whole. Man, music's incredible. And that God would use that as a tool to somehow attribute glory to him. How does that even work, man? Maybe as, as we sing, maybe if you're a follower of Jesus, your, your response this morning is to press into a God who is so, so big and so, so good to you. And the gifts that he has seen fit to give to you go far beyond what you recognize in front of you. Celebrate his goodness this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and His gospel. really do. Maybe today is the day that you're going to take the next step of following Him as Lord. So we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's an opportunity for all of us to respond to God's word in our heart and to begin to put action to that heart change, right? And what it looks like for you is you come, you come to God in prayer you call on his name to save you you trust in his work on your behalf to make you righteous before him as we sing we'll have a couple of people down front here to talk if anybody wants to talk Maybe, maybe you're here today and for the very first time you say yeah I want in on this I want to follow him I want what he is offering not just the 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 meager gifts come meet the giver who is infinitely more valuable than his dumb little gifts let's pray Father God you are good to us you bless and bless and bless you have patience and restraint even though we deserve wrath you give us opportunity to repent even though our sinfulness doesn't deserve your presence or your things you still give us both and I am dumbfounded by all of that. I thank you for little things that bring joy to our world. And all of us have different lists and different kinds of lists and you have created us and hardwired us in different ways to enjoy all these different things. I can't keep up with how big a God you are. But I love that I can't. I love that you are constantly inspiring and bringing new things to us. Your gifts are lovely, but you are far lovelier still. So for those this morning who need to press into you, would you make yourself known? For those this morning who have never met you, would you reveal yourself to them? And that by meeting you, all the other gifts fade into the background so in your name we pray amen